when I saw that this was one of your favorites, I thought I have been meaning to read this book for probably since 2010 when it came out or right around then. And so I thought I'm going to do it now. And I'm at like the 76% mark. Oh, good. So you're reading it right now. (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 201. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Before we get to today's guest, I wanted to share an email about Book Twins. Last week, as part of our 200th episode celebration, which was so much fun, thank you all for participating in that with us. Well, what we did was ask listeners to share their stories of finding their reading doppelganger in our archive of 200 episodes. Our goal here on the show is to eventually feature a guest that every single one of you will think, ah, that person reads like me. And when you find that person, we call them your book twin. So here's the story Donna shared. My book twin is Madeline Riley from episode 72. She talked about multiple things I could identify with. Loving mysteries, my favorite genre as well, and she picked my favorite series, the Inspector Gamache series by Louise Penny. Also middle grade books, judging books by their cover, and never feeling like your TBR is too long. I started following her on Instagram at Top Shelf Text, and over time, we got to know each other and became online friends. We recently started a small online book club called the M&M Book Club for mystery and middle grade, which has already been a lot of fun. So not only is What Should I Read Next great for book recommendations, it also helped me find a new book twin friend. This is such a great story. Thank you for sharing it, Donna. Readers, let us know in the comments and on Instagram who your book twin is. This game never gets old. Just use the hashtag book twin so we can find you. Speaking of games. Here's a little reading personality test. When you are totally hating a reading experience, do you A, keep reading, or B, leave that book in the dust and move on to the next thing? Well, today, Brian Eichenberger and I are diving straight into this hotly debated issue, discussing the horrible books that, nevertheless, may have taught us lessons we still think about all the time. Brian is the kind of reader who wants to chew on big ideas and follow characters from childhood to old age to see what makes people tick, and who loves big, juicy family sagas. But he also has a taste for the unusual. So today I'm recommending three titles that will hopefully hit more than one target. Let's get to it. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. And it's so fun to talk to somebody else who lives in our lovely literary city of Louisville, Kentucky, which I think is underrated on the literary spectrum. Well, I do love this place. And I I definitely think that the literary aspects of it are one of the highlights. Well, something that I love about this show is that readers seem to experience this common bond no matter where they are. But it is fun to feel like your community is representing as far as books and reading is concerned. Absolutely. Well, my first clue that you were a serious reader, because we know each other casually, we have mutual friends and all that. I was in conversation with Celeste Ang at the library downtown for her book, Little Fires Everywhere, which, so good, right? By the way, I'm thinking that that's in your wheelhouse. 
Oh, oh man. Is it ever in my wheelhouse? We need to come back to that. But yes, I'm just going to say that I was so jealous when I saw that you were getting to facilitate that conversation. But she was super sweet. I mean, I'm sure she was great to you, but like I stayed for the signing and I was the very last person and she signed my book. Thanks for being the very last person and waiting in line this whole time. Celestine. So it's classy, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, the first clue was we're in conversation and you may be jealous, but I mean, it was, it was super fun. I was thrilled when Carmichael's asked me, but also, oh my gosh, that's so much. It takes so much preparation to have an effortless conversation, but I was trying to have this effortless conversation and I looked up and I was like, oh, Hey, there's Brian and Deb. Uh, yep. Uh, there I was in the back enjoying life and enjoying your, uh, you did a very, you did a very nice job. Thank you. You weren't that far back, but I figure if you're going to show up at the library on a weeknight downtown to listen to an author talk about her book, you either have a good friend that you're doing a favor for, or you are excited about literature. It's actually funny because I was actually there with my sister and my sister and I recommend each other books and we always hate the books, but we continue to recommend books to each other. (laughs) I would recommend all these books to her and she read like four of them, bless her heart. And then she was like, I don't like any of these, but then she read Little Fires Everywhere and she really liked it. And she said, this might be the one book that we agree on. And it was. So when we saw the Celeste was coming into town, I said, this has got to be a thing we do together. We've got to go see her speak together. So it was a a blast. That actually sounds a lot like my brother and me. We're both huge readers. We don't read similar stuff, except for that one little sliver on the Venn diagram where we overlap and we like really geek out about, uh, what do we both like? Like Emily St. John Mandel is one. Oh, sure. That's great. But I do feel like maybe we just have enough of a history there. He's good at being like, "Uh, I don't know if this book is for me, but you need to know about it. And I can do the same. Like, oh, hey, I just got this book in the mail and I have no intention of reading it, but you are going to love it. (laughs) I mean, you can still have great discussions about books without enjoying the same books. Thank goodness. That's true. Yeah. But I just made my sister read The Goldfinch, and she's going to hold that against me forever, I think, because, <laughs> because I mean, let's, let's be fair, The Goldfinch is really long. So putting that much effort into anything, she kept being like, I think I'm going to quit, because that's a big difference she and I have, and I'm very interested in your philosophy on this. I'm not necessarily one of these people that's like a not a quitter in life. Like, I'm okay mm-hmm. with like, if there's extenuating circumstances and you need to move on from something or whatever, it's okay to stop a project. But when it comes to reading, if I start something, I am very adamant about finishing it, even if I'm hating every minute of it. Like, if I'm reading a novel and I'm like, I really hate this novel, but I'm going to finish it so I can get all the way to the end. Because I find that there is this, sometimes you get to the end and you're like, you know what? Either I liked it more than I thought I would, or I learned something from it or it had an impact on me. And it's in an artistic sense that like it made me feel something, even though I never want to feel that thing again. My sister has a different philosophy where she says if she starts something, she doesn't like it. She doesn't care how far she's in. She'll just drop it and go to something else because her statement is life is too short to waste my time reading books I don't mm-hmm. like, which I kind of get on a certain level. But I think you cheat yourself out of an experience that's outside your comfort zone if you just quit when you're like, well, I'm not digging this. I have strong opinions about this, actually, both in favor of quitting and in favor of persevering. Oh, okay. First of all, just speaking for me and my reading life, I used to be a finisher every time because conscientious firstborn daughters who got good grades and you know want to be upstanding citizens, they finish what they start. Yes, and that sir. includes books. 
But really, the thing that tipped me into being really like a florid abandoner is professionally, I would need to read a lot of different books for a lot of different purposes. I mean, the summer reading guide is my big example. We put out a summer reading guide for Modern Mrs. Darcy every year. It's 25 to 30 titles that I have read every page of, that I love, that I'm really excited about, that I think many readers in my audience will love. And I know what I'm looking for. And if I start reading a book and I think, you know, this could be an amazing book for the fall, or I think I might enjoy this, but I don't think it will have the broad, the potential for broad appeal, like I'm looking for for the summer reading guide. Uh, Sometimes I'll start reading something and I'll think, ah, the quality seems to be lacking here. Maybe it just needs another edit and I need to wait not to have the advanced review. Now I'm just equivocating, Brian. Sometimes I feel bad about quitting books, but I do. (laughs) Which I think is part of this whole discussion, right? It's like there is a certain point where you want to give everybody a certain chance, but like then where do you pull the chances back? I did a thing a few years ago, just a personal thing where I was like, I'm going to write down a list of all of these writers that I've never read that I've heard of. Mm -hmm. Big names like these kind of literary fiction people. So Joyce Carol Oates, Wally Lamb, John Irving, John Updike, all these guys. I've not read two of those authors ever. Okay, so the interesting, right? <laughs> they're on my list. And I guess that one of them is is Updike. Yeah, Updike and Oates. I mean, I seriously, I'm recording in my office. I have books by each within reach, but I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Okay. So it's an interesting conversation because Updike has had a huge influence on people. And probably people that I like as writers, but I read one and I I probably read one that wasn't great because I read like a, a later one that was on audio and I just was like curious to read something in his library. I was like, I'm, I don't ever really want to read Updike again. And I really kind of don't ever want to read Irving again. I hated World According to Garb. Hated that book. Thought it missed on all cylinders. But clearly, I'm missing something because that book is highly lauded. And I told a woman I used to work with, I said, she was talking about her dog named Garp. And I was like, please tell me you did not name your dog. <laughs> Of course, the dog was named after the book, right? Yeah. So uh, we had, you know, it's like I highly respect her as a writer and as a reader. And, you know, she loves that book. So it's, you know, everybody has a different opinion. But I think there's different lines, right? Read them once and then don't read them again. If you just decide you really don't like it, I might never read another Irving, but I want to try it once. But you're right. I mean, especially in your situation, you probably come across some things that you're like, well, the quality just doesn't hold up. And at that point, I think that's a different judgment call than just saying, like, I don't like the story. There is the pragmatist in me who can see, like, if you're reading professionally, the reader in you may want to continue. The reader in you may want to give it a shot, but, like, the professional in you cannot. I mean, it's like if you want to give a meeting the attention it deserves, but you talk too long and you miss your dentist appointment, like, there's a problem there. Like, you may have been really well-intentioned, but you can't fit all the books you want to read into the life that you're living. Something else that I hear a lot is... It took the author years to write that book so I can do them the service of reading it. Part of me agrees with that. Like, yes, it's extremely time consuming to write a book. And I have great respect for anyone who has finished doing such a thing. But like, it takes five hours minimum to read a book. And I'm not getting in the car with a stranger to like drive to Chicago with them to do them a favor. That's what I can do with five hours of my life. And so that argument just, (laughs) I know I hear it a lot. It does not hold water for me. But something that I want to go back to is there are good reasons to abandon books. I mean, sometimes you can read a book and you can be like, "Eh, this is clearly not for me. This has content I don't want to read. I am not at a place in my life right now where I want to read about something tragic, for example. But it also makes me nervous when people say they'll 
they'll quit a book if they're not enjoying it. And there are lots of reasons to read. Reading for enjoyment is one of them. And yet some of my most profound reading experiences have been from books that have really like messed me up that I didn't enjoy at all. But like the ideas have really stuck with me and the resulting conversations have been really valuable. And I wouldn't want to trade that. I don't know if you have a book like this, but my book like this is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. I hated that book. Oh, my God, I am in the last little bit of that book right now. Right now? Right now. That is unexpected. I hated that book. It's awful. Okay, because I something I wonder is, did I hate that book? Because I was a baby when I read it. I was like 21 or 22. And I really wondered if I just was not mature enough to read and appreciate the concept. I thought that was a real possibility. I think there are moments in it that are really interesting. And I do think there are moments in it that will stick with me. What I, I get a little frustrated with him in the same way that I get a little frustrated with Updike and Irving both. This certain male perspective that I understand why it's existed and why it continues in certain circles, but it feels very, especially, I mean, this book was written in 80, what, 82, 83. It's about 1968. So, I mean, definitely things were different, but the perspective is overwhelming. And then he does that thing that like the Upton Sinclair move where all of a sudden you're not in the story anymore. And it's just all this philosophical meandering. And so it's a little hard to wrap your head around why you're even paying attention to this story because it kind of feels more like he's using it as an object lesson to talk about these philosophical things, which I, which I think he was because there's a lot of political stuff. And this is a great example of what you're talking about. Where is the value in it? Because the value in this book for me is learning a lot about Czechoslovakia and Russia, which are two things I, you know, I didn't know anything about what was going on there in 1968. Milkman by Anna Burns is a great example of that. I didn't love the book, but I learned a lot about Ireland and revolutions and things that were happening in the 70s there that I might not pick up a book out of the nonfiction section about that. But if I read a novel and it's historically grounded, it's a great place to kind of grow that knowledge, which is one of the reasons I read when we're talking about reasons to read, right? It's not just enjoyment, it's about learning. But if I can do it and kind of in this this mask of I'm also having fun, then that's a win. I have not read Milkman, but I've heard so many readers say, eh, I didn't really like it. But that is the best book club discussion we have ever had. Totally. You know, a book like this for me that I I read almost a decade ago, I still think about it all the time. And it's called The Unnamed by Joshua Ferris. Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. I've only read his first one. Then we came to the end? Yeah, that's the one I've read by him. Oddly, that's the only one by him I haven't read. And that's the one that everybody says is good. (laughs) So maybe I should read it. I read the one after this, which is even weirder, but I enjoyed way more because I know him. But The Unnamed is about a guy who wakes up one day and can't stop walking. It's really strange. Like as just that being the plot, it's really strange. But I think about it all the time. And I don't really know why I think about it all the time. But now with 10 years perspective on it, I'm like, this is a great piece of art. Joshua Ferris has been in my brain more than Parada and Tropper and all these guys who I would say are like some of my favorite, just like good, feel good writers that I like to read. I've dedicated way less brain space to them than I have to this Joshua Ferris novel that I don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's so weird. Yeah, I feel that way about Milan Kundera. Which I read because I was going to the Czech Republic and I wanted to read this famous book out of the culture. And I just, it was so bleak and it made me feel so helpless. But his central metaphor is one that I have come back to every few weeks for 20 almost years now. What does it mean to live in the face of, you know, happiness and also deep, deep sorrow? And I'm so glad I read it. 
So my favorite thing in that book, he says basically that this relationship, this man and this woman are having an affair and it's not really working, right? It's like not lining up. And the way he illustrates this is by a glossary of terms for how she defines things in like the memory and the sense that she brings into something and then the way it affects him. So it's like they go into a cathedral and oh, they, no. and so there's like a specific cathedral. And it's like, when he sees the cathedral, he thinks about this. When she's inside the cathedral, she thinks about this. And so even though they're both saying cathedral, they're feeling very, very disparate things. And I just thought, hey, it's an amazing device to use as a novelist, but it's also an amazing way to think about things, right? About how much loaded emotion we bring into stuff that the other person experiencing with us has no idea of. Well, we are wading into dangerous territory because I did not remember that, but you're making me want to read this book I hated again. And that's just, <laughs> we might need to move on. Read that part. Just go to that part. <laughs> the first quarter is I might do that. So when people talk about abandoning books because they're not enjoying them, I think that's just one of so many reasons to read. What I think of is I want to read books that are worth my reading time. In a book that isn't to your taste, that you don't think is fun, you know, can be absolutely worth your reading time. That's how I frame the question in my own mind. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like I actually do think about GARP quite a bit, just mostly because I'm irritated by it, but <laughs> I, I don't find myself pulling things out of GARP like I do out of Unbearable Lightness of Being. Like even while I'm reading this book right now, I'm thinking like, I'm not really enjoying this, but I am getting something out of it. It's like watching a film and seeing camera angles and being like, oh, that's an interesting perspective on the way to do this. Right. And this is how I feel about Unbearable Lightness. Like mm -hmm. I think he's doing a lot of things with form that have been clearly a very hugely influential novel. And that's probably part of it is all of the kind of formatic stuff that he's able to play with. Yeah. And there are many different ways to appreciate a book. And that is definitely one of them. Something else there is about reading books that aren't to your taste is you can learn a lot about what you do like and what does work for you by reading things that don't fit that. Because you mentioned that Garp like kept niggling at you. I would imagine that that causes you to wonder like, okay, what is it about this book that just keeps tapping at me? And if you yes. can identify that, the next time you do want to find a book that you will enjoy, you have a better idea of what to look for. That's a great point. And now it's an archetype, right? So now I'll start something and be like, uh-oh, this is Garp-like. And a great example of that is I made myself read The Shipping News earlier this year. Have you ever read that? I still haven't read that. I bought a copy so that I would, but I, I haven't yet. I didn't like it because it, to me, is built on the exact same framework of Garp. And it's like, I don't really necessarily know articulately how to explain what I'm talking about, but there's like this, it's not satire, but it's like this attitude about how the characters are presented. And it's like kind of tongue in cheek, but kind of not. It's almost like a, like disrespecting that form or something. I can't decide what it is I don't like, but those two books to me feel very similar. So now if I see something compared to either of those books, I know, hmm, this might be something I want to pass on. Okay. So I just said that by reading what you don't like, you can better understand what you do like. Next, we're going to come at that from the different direction that we do on What Should I Read Next. Brian, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books that you do love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. We will try to pin down what you should read next. Awesome. So we've talked a lot about what you don't like. Brian, what is a book that you love? I really don't ever walk away from calling this my favorite book of all time. Like I can't do it with a movie, but I can with a book, I can say definitively at this point in my life for the last 10 years or so, is a book called The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake that was written by Amy Bender. Do you know anything about it? Okay. When I saw that this was one of your favorites, I thought I have been meaning to read this book 
for probably since 2010 when it came out or right around then. And so I thought, I'm going to do it now. And I'm at like the 76% mark. Oh, good. So you're reading it right now. <laughs> I've bought this book for people. I also have this annoying habit, both with music and with books. It's really annoying with music because most people don't have physical music anymore. So when I show up and I'm like, hey, I bought this thing for you. They're like, what do I do with this? <laughs> Send me a link. But I buy books when I find them cheap in bookstores or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and If I'm going through a bin and I'm like, oh, and I'll bought so many copies of Particular Sadness and I've just handed it to people and said, here, this is yours. I want you to read it. You know, normally with a little like where I know that they're going to enjoy it. My sister did not enjoy this book. But the, you know, the premise is a nine-year-old girl wakes up on her birthday. Mom makes her a cake. She takes a bite of it and realizes she can taste sadness in it. And she doesn't understand what that is. And so the rest of the book is really about this girl who realizes she can taste feelings inside food. So it sounds kind of wacky, but it's very much a, it's like, I love coming of age stories. I mean, that's probably Mm -hmm. one of the categories we can tack on here because childhood is such a magical time, but like figuring out how to be an adult as hard as that is can be kind of magical too. And that's really what this book is about. And I had a really interesting experience with this book where the first time I read it, I had one experience with how it ends and how I read into the character of her brother specifically. And then- I don't know how it ends. Tonight, this is happening. (laughs) And then something happened in my life personally. Now, I'm going to avoid all spoilers here, especially since you're reading it. And it kind of colored the way I thought about the character of her brother. And I read Mm -hmm. it in a couple of years ago. And I called a friend of mine and said, hey, how did you read the character of Joe and what happens to him? And she told me, and I said, yeah, that's how I read it the first time. But the second time I read it as this. And I told her and she said, oh, no, yeah, I definitely did not. That's not what I got from that at all. When people have read it, I'm very interested to have this conversation because there's kind of two ways to come at what happens to him in a sense. It's very interesting to me how a piece of writing that hasn't changed at all has changed a lot for me based on experiences that I had in between two readings of it. Yes, and I really love how a good book can do that. Like you track your own life against it, you know, because the book hasn't changed, but you have. Right. That's like like an intangible, hard to explain thing, but it's really exciting when, when it happens for you. I kind of have two categories of books that I love. And one of them is what I would call, though I don't know that technically this is falls in this category, but I kind of call it magic realism, right? So this mm-hmm. is a great example of that, where it's like, it's the normal universe, it's the normal world, except this nine-year-old wakes up and suddenly can taste feelings in food. And that's the only detail that's switched, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, and to that degree, I mean, you can call Underground Railroad magic realism, kind of, right? For that same reason. And I like that book, mostly because of that. I loved Exit West because of that, because there's this one little detail that you can tweak, and then it really changes how you interact with the story. And I just think, you know, like my wife says, she loves fantasy books and she loves Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling invented this world. And I guess what I find more interesting is not inventing a world that doesn't exist, but figuring out ways to mess with the world that we're in that make it more compelling. And so I really like books like that because of that. Brian, something that I found really interesting about the particular sadness, I noticed how you nicknamed it, was I think based on the title and the cover, I expected it to be something whimsical and charming. And I'm not saying those elements are wholly absent, but those are not the adjectives I would choose to describe that book. 
No, not at all. If you've read Amy Bender at all, you realize that this is what she does, right? She takes these concepts and, I mean, she has this crazy book that I've not read all the way through and I've always meant to. I think I just returned it to the library or something. I'm forgetting what it's called. They actually made a movie of it with Jessica Alba that no one saw. Invisible Sign of My Own, I think is what it's called. And it's about this girl who just like starts walking around with an axe and she just carries an axe everywhere she goes. If you need to figure out if you can stomach Amy Bender, you need to read some short stories because that you get a taste of what she does before you commit to a whole full-length novel. She does have this very specific way of messing with the universe that you're reading about in these small but very significant ways that it's not necessarily sweet. And I do wonder if the way the book was marketed, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, right? But if the way the book was marketed kept some people from reading it or got it the wrong audience in some way, shape, or form, because it does kind of look like something, you know, it kind of looks like it's about cooking. Or so, you know what I mean? It kind of looks mm-hmm. like uh, Eat, Pray, Love or something. And it's definitely not that. Brian, what did you choose for your second favorite book? The Hike by Drew McGeary. When it comes to fiction, I have two things I really like. I like magic realism. And then I like this, like, let's take a family through a period of time and follow all the family members. Oh, that book gives me the creeps. Hey, so you've read- I've read part of it. Oh, and then I didn't sleep for a week. It's really, really strange. There are these over-the-top magical elements, not like small tweaks to the universe, right? But you didn't you didn't get to the end of it? Haven't read the end. We did discuss this in the episode with Liberty Hardy, but she loves creepy books, and she, of course, had read it multiple times. You need to look up the ending of that book. It is unbelievable, the last page of that book. The last page? Oh, oh that is intriguing. If you have a copy of it, you could go and read the last page. And, and kind of get this effect. So I will bait people with that. As long as you kind of know what the setup of the novel is. Like, read the back and then read the back page. It's a short circuit. It won't be as impactful. But, like, it's pretty cool. And I didn't know anything about Drew McGarry. Drew McGarry is like a sports writer. If you know anything about me, I do not care about sports really at all. <laughs> you just endeared yourself to a whole lot of listeners. <laughs> so I don't, I mean, obviously I don't have time. I'm reading all these books. I don't have time to care about basketball. But that being said, I think it's interesting because it is kind of this giant metaphor for trying to provide and be a resource and be somebody your kids can look up to and somebody your wife is still in love with and all this stuff. But it's told as this like crazy Pilgrim's Progress meets Harry Potter meets six Stephen King horror movies together. (laughs) Like it's super duper weird, all kind of tied up in that last page. So I love it, but it's a very personal book to me because of that. And I don't necessarily know that other things he writes even that I would love or things that are like weirdly like have those horror elements that this has. I don't know that that's what I like about it. It more has to do with the overarching kind of metaphor he's going for and the really offbeat way he was able to do it. So it kind of combines that personal journey thing that I like along with the magic realism and using strange elements to tell the story. Okay. You just said weird a lot of times and it's just underscoring the book recommendation that was floating through my mind. I think we're going to do it. I think, but first we're going to hear what you chose for your next favorite. I mean, I almost have categories, right? Like, so it's like, I just finished The Last Romantics by Tara Conklin. And it's a perfect example of this type of book. But I would go with, if I just had to pick one, probably The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer. This long, expansive look at a group of friends who meet in summer camp and then what happens for the rest of their lives and how they kind of circle back to each other in different ways. So you like a book with a wide angle lens. Yeah. And I like a book with a lot of characters where it goes really deep and you get to meet them young and kind of watch what happens, right? Like I find that idea of, and this goes back to that like coming of age thing of like, who do we become 
and what makes us become who we become. Oh, Brian, you're singing my song. It's so interesting. And that's why I love Little Fires Everywhere, right? And I love The Children's Crusade by Ann Packer and Commonwealth by Ann Paget. I mean, I could go on and on with books like this. There's a certain type of book. And it's like, once you see that one of them is related to the other, you can just read all of them. There's a million of them. A recent book that did this well, but kind of did this very overtly is um, The Immortalists, the Chloe Benjamin book. (laughs) Another book I've read half of. I think there's other books that do what that book is trying to do a little better, but it's interesting because it kind of combines the magic realism thing with this story. Like that's probably the penultimate version of my two favorite types of books smashed together. Oh yeah, it really does, doesn't it? From a critical standpoint, I think there's other books that do it better. And I just, the interestings by Meg Wallitzer is just, it's just dynamite. I mean, I think I think about the characters in that book a lot still, and I read it probably five years ago. Okay, Brian, it's really interesting to me that you've chosen a lot of reads that have very mediocre aggregate ratings on a site like Goodreads. Oh, really? Yeah. I've actually never looked that up. Well, I think that's a good life strategy. So like, I'm big on personal recommendations. Like if you, like whatever you tell me, I'm going to read immediately. But like, I'm not big on going to a website and saying like, these are the things that you would like if you like this. Like, I just think it sells something short of the experience, right? Because there's so many little nuances that can make up the reading experience. And so when you're just like looking for that same kind of thing over and over and over, you miss out on, I mean, this is kind of what our whole conversation has been, right? But you miss out on the other elements that add to a reading experience. Sometimes people will proudly say to me, oh, I'm a book snob. And I never read a book with less than a four-star rating. And I just, oh, that's not a good, that's not a good life strategy. No. Not at all. But I think it can be really interesting to know what works specifically, you know, what was custom designed for you that is not for the masses. It makes me feel like a very special snowflake when I feel like a three-star read, you know, a book that many people are like, eh, it was fine, is absolutely perfect for me. That means that whether it was a recommendation or whether I got lucky or just chose really well, I'm reading the right thing. Yeah. And like you mentioned uh, Station Eleven earlier. Well, you mentioned the writer of Station Eleven. I'm assuming you're talking about Station Eleven, which does a lot of what I love. You see all these different people. I mean, there's a different mechanism to bring them all together, but you see them all at different phases of their life. That's why I find friendships and and people fascinating, right? It's because every time you meet them, they're a different version of themselves. Yeah, and lots of moving parts that come together in unexpected and uh, always interesting ways. Okay, Brian, so we've talked about your dislike of GARP. Are there any other books that just did not work for you? So another book that I did not like is important to mention because on paper, it looks like exactly my jam. So like if, if this was reversed and you had said everything that I've said so far to me, anyone would then go, oh, by doing this mathematical equation, you should read A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. It is about a set of characters and, the, you know, throughout their lives and the way they, you know, what happens and the way they turn out after kind of growing up as teenagers in punk rock and all this. And I am a huge punk rock guy. I'm a huge music guy. So like I had so many people tell me like, this is going to be your favorite book. Forget lemon cake. This is going to be your jam. And I really didn't like it. You know, Goon Squad almost reads like short stories. They're character sketches. There's there's not a big narrative unity. I don't think it comes together very well. We can see that you, like, you are okay to go to bleak places. But I think maybe malaise for its own sake, or to just highlight the despair of humanity, is not for you. There has to be either a greater end or a thread of hope. 
like so I think a hundred percent what you're saying is true. Like I think the the difference between a goon squad and like a Commonwealth by Impatch Ed, just to use that one, is that there's a character who you're on board with the whole time. In reading the interestings and Patchet Lemon Cake, you're leaning in, going, "Come on, family, pull it together. You can do it." Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really interesting. I think you you might have helped me figure myself out a little bit more. Happy to help. All right. Brian, let's look at your books. You Loved, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake by Amy Bender, The Hike by Drew Margery, and The Interestings by Meg Wolitzer. Not For You are A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan, even though it came highly recommended, and The World According to Garp by John Irving. So you know a lot about what you like. You love coming-of-age stories. You love stories that are completely set in an ordinary world, except for that one significantly different thing. You like a good novel that follows a family or a found family through a long period of time. I'm so glad you read The Last Romantics. That does sound like right squarely in that. Right in the heart. Are you ready for some ideas? I'm super excited, yes. Do you remember forever ago where I was like, wait, I've read a book like that recently? I've read a book like that recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it? It comes out on October 29th. It's the new one from Kevin Wilson, and it is called Nothing to See Here. Oh, I've read some Kevin Wilson. And I'm excited. I liked that last one, the one about the social experiment where they all live together. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this one is very interesting. Here's what you need to know about this book. In his pre-release chatter about nothing to see here, Kevin Wilson has said that this novel continues his obsession with family dynamics, which you like, and spontaneous yes. human combustion. Oh, perfect. So you said that you liked super duper weird and this one totally delivers. Okay. So in this novel, you have a powerful, privileged political family in Franklin, Tennessee. The dad is angling to become secretary of state, might want to run for president one day, married a perfect wife who could support his every political goal, but he has this one teeny tiny problem. Are you ready? He has two small children from a previous marriage who spontaneously combust when angry. <laughs> I cannot wait. Okay, so Kevin Wilson says that he's obsessed with how people are weird and how we live with that. And you mentioned that you really love stories about how people become who they are and how they respond to the hand that they're dealt and the forces that shape them. And not just obviously how people deal with this strange, spontaneous combustion situation, but the fact that what you see, I think in all his books, is how like the people that you live with in your family and your close friends too, we see that in this book, they shape you and they make you who you are, even if you're desperately trying to assert your own identity. You may try to break free, you may succeed, but those people still influence who you become and how you become it. And knowing that he's always writing towards those dynamics and the element of weirdness, I think makes you like take a step back and go, whoa, what is actually going on here? I think this could be really fun for you. Oh man, it sounds perfect. Like it sounds like if I was going to write a premise to a book that I wanted to read, combining all the elements that I've laid out here today, this would, this is exactly it. So well done. I'm very impressed. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. So that is Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, October 29th. I'm writing it down. Wasn't going to recommend you another Ann Patchett book, but it's too good. So we have to go there. She has a new book coming out September 24th. It's called The Dutch House. When I heard about this, I thought, really? A painting school? I saw the cover, which is striking. I mean, it looks like a painting by a Dutch master. Really bold colors, really vivid. It's an up-close portrait of a young woman's face. I didn't care. 
I'm like, I don't want to read about a house. I want to read about people. But luckily, yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound good. It's good. Hang on. I'm sharing my misconceptions with you so that you can avoid the same. The Dutch house of the title is, in fact, a real house. And it's a house that sounds so realistic that I was rushing to Google going, is this a real place? How much of this was inspired by reality? And how much is Ann Patchett's imagination? I'm going to hear her when she comes to book tour on Louisville. I'm sure she's going to discuss this. But as far as I can tell, this is not a real place. But this is a house that is practically a character in the story because we just talked about the forces that shape you and make you who you are, even though you don't want them to have an effect on you. Well, for this family, the Dutch house is a key force that shapes them. There's a father who grew up poor. And when he did make some money, the house represented success and fulfillment and achievement. But to his wife, it represented entrapment. And to the kids, it represented both their identity and also a very unhappy home life. That house was everything to some of the people in it and a big creepy burden to others. It's a house that provokes strong reactions. But the thing I like best about this story is you've got a narrator that you can root for who's telling you the story of his childhood his upbringing, and most importantly, his relationship with his sister. So when you meet Danny, he's old, but he takes you way back in time to when he was less than 10 and tells you about his mother who was driven away by the house, his stepmother who sounds like something out of Cinderella, but most importantly is his relationship with his sister. And I've really enjoyed Ann Patch's work in the past. I think this is her best. It's so good. It spans more than 50 years, tells the story of three generations. And what I like about it is she really probes the complexities of family relationships. And every time I think, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like, I'm so glad you added that element to the story. It provides so much depth. She adds more and more and more and more brings characters that had been kind of in the wings back to the forefront. I mean, she just goes so deep with each character. She just keeps digging so much so that even though this book is just barely over 300 pages, it feels like it contains worlds. Does that sound interesting at all? I feel like I'm saying a bunch of words that don't sound like anything. No, that sounds, again, completely and totally up my alley, partly because of the sibling element. I realized about myself years ago, there's just so many works of art, books, movies, music. Otherwise, they're about that romantic relationship. There's not that much stuff that's about brother-sister, right? Like, we've named a lot of novels in this case today, but like, in general, it would be very outweighed by romantic story. I remember seeing that movie that like, I don't even know there was a good movie called You Can Count On Me with uh, Orlenny and Mark Ruffalo. And it's just just about there's like no romantic story in it at all. It's just about this brother and sister and how they get along. And I remember getting to the end of that movie and being like, that might be the first time I've ever seen a story that was just about a brother and a sister, just about siblings and the dynamics. And I think the sibling relationship is so interesting because in a lot of cases, it's the only other person who started at the exact same starting line or real close to the exact same starting line, right? And had the same parents, probably lived in the same house. Granted, there are different versions of childhood for people, but like in general, then siblings grow up and they become very, very different. So what are those things that cause that to happen? That to me is just so fascinating. So the idea that there's sibling relationships in the middle of this, that's what I loved about The Last Romantics, right? It's all about those siblings. Mm -hmm. It's all about the siblings. Yeah, I'm super excited about that one too. Something that she tells you, she wants you to pay attention to in the story is how the past is constantly informing the present and how our present shapes the way we understand the past and how there's this constant interplay. Because as we look back, we don't just see it as the people we were back then, but we see it as the people we are now, which means we're always seeing it in a new way. And I got to tell you, you've talked about symbolism and metaphor in some of the books you've enjoyed pay attention to the building metaphors in this story. I mean, they're all kinds of nerdy fun. 
fun, fun, fun. I'm excited about that. I don't know what direction to go in next. I'm debating between a family saga spanning many years set in New York City and a found family saga spanning many years about a group of classical musicians. What do you think? Choose your own adventure. Ooh, they both sound good. <laughs> um, well, you've given me the family, so let's do the found family classical musician. Okay, what we're going to talk about is the ensemble by Aja Gable. Do you know this one? I've seen it, and I know that name, but no, this is the most unfamiliar of the recommendations here as far as writers. Okay, it's got a really striking, memorable cover, so I'm not surprised that you remember it if you've seen it. This is a novel. It's actually Gable's debut, and she used to be a cellist, so she knows what she's writing about here. But it's set in the 90s in a functional family, meaning there is no blood or marital relationship here, but they function as a family unit. Or rather, I would say that this novel, though it's not about an actual family, feels like a dysfunctional family story. It's about four promising musicians who are talented enough, one of them is a genuine prodigy, that they would usually go the soloist path to musical success. But instead, they've decided to join forces and form a string quartet, which means that they are bound professionally and just because of the nature of the business personally. I have to say that I'm not a huge music person. My brother tells me most of what I know, and I do like a good novel that explores that, but this is not a world I was familiar with, and I found that really fascinating. Any pursuit you're doing at a high level attracts strong personalities. Is that fair to say? That's a sweeping statement. But you have four strong personalities who are very different, but live much of their lives way up in each other's spaces. What I like about this for you is the characters are not always likable. I mean, at the beginning, it starts with somebody doing something uh, that's going to make you go, really? Is this a good idea? Are you sure? Like, ooh, you're not going to feel good about, I think it's Jana at the beginning. So they're not likable, but they ring true, which makes for really interesting reading. Typically, you would take this idea of musicians getting together and binding each other, making a found family over their music in a, in a rock band setting, right? Uh-huh, you would. I'm totally into that, yeah. These recommendations are great. It's like you do this for a living. <laughs> well, read them first, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> they sound good on paper. It could be a goon squad situation, so I'll keep my fingers crossed. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed, too. Okay, Brian, so here's what we've got. We talked about Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, and The Ensemble by Aja Gable. Now, of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I have a feeling I know what you want to read next. Yeah, I want to read the Kevin Wilson book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Only one of them is available to me right now. I, I will check out The Ensemble. <gasps> oh, that was so rude of me. <laughs> we got to have something to look forward to. I've got little spots in my fall to plug these books in, so that's, that'll be very fun. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. I have no doubt that you will tell me. Brian, thanks so much for talking books with me today. Hey, thank you for having me. This has been a blast, like out of control blast. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Brian and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 201. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Make sure to check out Brian's podcast, The Story Guys. You can find that at wearethestoryguys.com slash podcast. And give him a follow on Twitter at beichen22. That's at B-E-I-C-H-E-N-2-2. If you're interested in hearing my full conversation with Celeste Ng, and I gotta say, it was a good one. 
consider becoming a patron for instant access. Visit patreon.com slash what should I read next for more information. Patreon, that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, is a platform that makes it easy for us to share fun behind the scenes peaks, polls and photographs, and bonus audio like this interview with Celeste Ng, bonus episodes of One Great Book, and the full episodes from last week's episode 200 Look Back. Find us there. Again, that's patreon.com slash what should I read next. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Vogel. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Vogel and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the things. If you're not on the list, go to What Should I Read Next podcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the book love and share it with a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We are getting so close to the 5,000 ratings and reviews mark, and it would fill our bookish hearts with joy here at What Should I Read Next HQ to hit 5K. I would also love it if you bought or borrowed a copy of my book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend. You can find it anywhere you get your new books or at a library near you. It's all about the reading life, and if you enjoy the show, it's the perfect, beautiful hardcover for you and the readers in your life. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>